All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And tonight, in the passage that we're covering in particular, it's only four verses long. And you're like, Travis, we should get out of here really fast then. Nope. (laughs) But, nevertheless, um, it's a really great passage, and so I'm excited to dive in. We're looking at the Church of Smyrna in particular, the Church of Smyrna. If you still have that sheet from last week that laid out the comparison of the chart of all the churches, you might notice if you look down at that chart that this is a church that doesn't receive a rebuke from Jesus, and it's also a church that does not receive any call to repentance from Jesus. This is a church that's suffering. It's going through a difficult time. Uh, and also, if you need a Bible, there's some in the back window there, okay? Uh, but um, some details about Smyrna. It was the next city north after Ephesus, okay, following the coast of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor back then. And Smyrna was a, it was a coastal city and actually is still a city today. It's a, it goes by a different name, of course. Uh, but the, the city today built on top of the old Smyrna. And uh, we see here in this, in this city, um, we know this book is written by the Apostle John, right? Well, John discipled a man named Polycarp. Okay, what a name, Polycarp. And Polycarp was later made Bishop of Smyrna. Uh, and we know this uh, because of Irenaeus, a second century apologist is what he's called. This is what he said about Polycarp. He said, he said this, but Polycarp also was not instructed by apostles, or sorry, he was instructed by apostles. Uh, he had conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also, by the apostles in Asia, appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna. Um, so we see here, he was put in this place of bishop by the apostles. And this bishop, by the way, is just another way of saying pastor back then. He was a pastor. He was the pastor of the church of Smyrna. Now, um, Irenaeus, he knew this because he was a young child when Polycarp was made Bishop of Smyrna. And he, he says, For he tarried on earth a very long time, and when a very old man, he gloriously and most nobly suffered martyrdom. Martyrdom means they died giving testimony for their faith. So he departed this life, having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles, and which the church has handed down, and which alone are true. We'll come back to Polycarp in the end, because of his connection to this church. But also, uh, an important feature you're going to want to keep in mind as we hit the end of this passage as well, is the idea of a crown. Uh, the city of Smyrna was considered the crown jewel of Asia Minor, uh, in part because the way it was built, it was right on the coast, but it, the city like built itself up, up a mountain, and it's Mount Pagus, P-A-G-U-S. And the way this mountain worked, I don't know if anyone's ever been to a city where it's kind of built on a mountain. I've been to the city of Montreal, uh, and, and Montreal literally means in French, Mount Royal or Royal Mountain. And when we went to the top of this one part, it was a, it was a beautiful part, and I got this awesome panoramic image of the entire city of Montreal. It's really beautiful. In the same way, the city of Smyrna, it had this mountain that overlooked the whole city. And, and you just had to ask someone from Smyrna back then, a Smyrnian or whatever you call them, a Smyrnan, uh, they... Um, They loved their city. They bragged about the beauty of their city. And so it was considered, this this panoramic view was called the crown of the city. The crown of the city. Now before we dive into the text, I'll go ahead and give you the main idea of the passage that I have. Here's the main idea 
of the passage, Jesus wants the church to look to the reality of his sovereignty and power and thus be faithful in the midst of great tribulation. This is what I think John, or Jesus, through the apostle John, this vision, is wanting the church at Smyrna to know. Jesus wants the church to look to the reality of his sovereignty and power and thus be faithful in the midst of great tribulation. Okay? So, let's go ahead and dive into reading the passage. So, Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read the whole passage, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slanderer of those uh, who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So diving into this passage, right away we see some really interesting things. You might remember what I brought up last week in the first letter. There's these two words used in the Greek, tadelege, and they're only used eight times in the text. And so the, this is the, the phrase right in the beginning, and the angel to the, of the church of Smyrna write the words, this phrase, the words. These words are not just like, hey, just write whatever I said down, cool, all right, have a nice day, right? These are authoritative, strong words. This is a message that's meant to be listened to and followed and adhered to. That's why it ends with hear. If you have an ear, hear what the Spirit says. These words are vitally important words. They're instructive, they're strong, they're authoritative words, okay? And so to this church in Smyrna, this is what he says. He actually goes and describes some qualities that we already read about in that vision of Christ and who Jesus is. And these are the two that are brought up. And we're going to see why that's really important in a moment. Notice it says, the words of the first and the last is from Revelation 1.17. And he who died and came to life is from Revelation 1.18. So each of these letters uh, to the churches are not merely choosing to just casually describe who Jesus is. They serve a theological purpose. Okay, there's a purpose here as to why these verses are, are these are descriptions are there. Uh, and one scholar said this about the purpose. He said the letters contain ethical instructions, right? They tell them how to live, okay? And they also give warnings. The commands of the risen Christ for living a faithful Christian life in a trying situation are also given. Such commands cannot stand alone. They are not general or obvious moral truths. Right? So, in other words, hey, everyone, even people at Woodlawn, these are obvious moral truths, just by themselves. These commands come from God. The, tr- the, truth, the truth of all these ethical commands, these warnings, these calls to be faithful, where do they come from? They come from this vision of the risen Lord. Go back to, just flip back in your Bible to Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And, and look what it says. I mean, let's just read it again. Their truth is bound up in the truth here. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, who was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp twitted sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Guys, the, church, the letter to the church of Smyrna is built off this vision that we just saw of Christ. I just wanted to, you to hear that and read that again because of how vitally important that is to understand this passage. They just saw Christ, or John just saw Christ in this vision. What is he doing? Well, this truth of Revelation 1, 9 to 20, is, it's bound up with the truth that the crucified one is the exalted Lord, vindicated by God and made Lord of all. Listen closely here. This is the main point I'm trying to get at about this, this little section. The ethical imperative is founded upon the, we could say, the indicative, the reality that Christ is who he is. The Christian life is founded, and we talked about this with Jay Warner Wallace, the Christian life is founded on the fact and reality of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is founded on the fact and reality of Jesus Christ. So, why would these two attributes from Christ be important to the church of Smyrna? Think about it. We saw with Ephesus, the seven golden stars in the right hand, and Jesus walks among the lampstands. Well, why is that important for Ephesus? We talked about that last week. And we answered that question, right? He knew their works. He knew even how good they were at some things, but he also knew their lack of love. They had left their first love. In this case, he brings up that he's the first and the last. Now, what does that mean? This has to do with time. He's the first. He's the first one to ever come. He precedes everyone and everything. There's none greater than him. None came before him. But he's also the last. He's going to outlast everyone and everything. And what does this do for, for them? Well, this helps us to look to his sovereignty. He's above everything. He's Lord over all throughout all things. But notice Jesus is saying this about himself. So Jesus is saying he is divine. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm God. I'm God. Jesus is saying that. In Scripture, only God is considered the first and the last. Go look at the book of Isaiah. Many times that takes place. But here in particular, Jesus is saying that he is God, and he's also saying by implication, he rules over all of history. Second, so he, we see he's the first and the last, but next we see that he is what? The one who has died and came to life, and came to life. So we see Jesus' experience. Jesus can sympathize with you and me in our weakness. You want to know why? Because he was tempted as we are, and yet he's without sin. That's from the book of Hebrews. But he also tasted death for everyone so that we wouldn't have to taste the second death. We're going to talk about that tonight as well. Christ entered our world. He suffered. That's a comfort. So many gods from these false religions around the world, they talk about how to live a good life, how to get to God. And you know what each of them do? They say, God's on the mountain. You're down here on earth. That's what they say, right? And they say, do these good works. Pray, chant, meditate, read the holy scriptures or books of whatever these religions are, and work your way up to the top of the mountain so you can know God. That's what these false religions teach. But you know what makes 
these false religions different from Christianity, Christianity completely unique, is that God is not calling us up to the mountain as if we're good enough to get there. Jesus comes down from the mountain, in other words. He comes down from heaven. He reveals himself to mankind saying, you are not good enough to get up the mountain. You are not good enough to get to God. You are unrighteous. You are unholy. But I will get you there. I will get you to God. I am, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. And he entered in our world. He entered in our suffering. What God of any other religion has actually done that? None. They're false gods. They're false idols. Christ, he's the only one who came. He's the one who suffered. We can verify this. He defeated death, the ultimate end of our suffering on earth. So, through these two things, him being the first and the last, him the one who died and rose again, we can look to his sovereignty, like we in the main idea, and his power. So Jesus wants the church to look at the reality of his sovereignty and his power. That's where I, the main idea, I think, is coming from here as he's getting to this church and he's trying to write to them. Now let's look at verse 9. Look down at your Bible. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He knows both those things. So he knows their tribulation. Remember, this is the same word I told you about before, the word oida. So it's this word that has this idea that he's omniscient, he knows all things, he completely knows the situation they're going through. He's very aware of it. Before we dive into some of this passage, I want to give you some historical context once again. You might remember, Jerusalem, when did it fall? What year? Quiz time. Pop quiz. 70 AD. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. So Jerusalem fell in 70 AD to the Romans. What do you think that did to the Jews? Do you think they just hung out in Jerusalem still? No. No. They spread out even more. There was already a dispersion of Jews around the Roman Empire, but that dispersed them even more. And also because the hostility from, against Christians from both the pagans and the Jews was already on the rise, definitely before the 60s AD, even more so after the fall of Jerusalem, it was even more. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but Judaism was a, a um, state-sanctioned religion. In other words, Rome gave Jews the approval to worship their God. But Christians didn't have that approval from Rome. I don't know if you guys knew that. And so Christianity was persecuted, whereas Judaism was not. Now, Judaism did suffer some persecution in Rome because of the insurrection they, they gave, um, but they were still allowed to have their synagogues all around the Roman Empire. That was fine. That was fine. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a really important detail because it's going to explain why they suffer persecution. So let's, let's look at this. Why, why did the Christians suffer serious persecution from Jews and Romans? I want to read to you this excerpt, real short excerpt from this commentary, where it says, even, I'm going to read this, even though a sense of well-being among Jews of, of the dispersion was certainly wavering, the Jews were themselves increasingly concerned about the inroads of the new faith in the Nazarene, or Jesus, that was happening within their own ranks. The fact that some Christians continued to associate closely with synagogues was apparently not a matter of great comfort to Jewish leaders. You might remember in the book of Acts, right? Paul, when he'd go up to a city, first thing he'd do is he'd go to a synagogue he would go to a synagogue first and try to reach the Jewish people. So Christians often would still attend Jewish synagogues here and there uh, because it was, one, it was a part of the community. And Paul showed that practice as well. The whole situation, though, it continued to decline with growing hostility of Jews toward Christians and fostering an increasing determination not to allow them to be identified with the synagogues. Apparently, all came to a crisis point in AD 90 
with the so-called curse of the Menim. Curse of the Menim. This is in the Shemua Eresh. This document produced by the Jews is apparently to be understood primarily as an official effort. This is a signed, stamped, delivered effort around the Roman Empire to the synagogues to divest synagogue worship everywhere of those Christians who claimed also to be Jewish. Okay? So that was to stop that. The conflict was not dissimilar to the one faced in the modern state of Israel, not just regarding Israelis who become Christians, but even the question as to whether anyone other than Orthodox Jews could be considered Jewish. Shortly after issuing this curse of the Menim, the Emperor Domitian, who had come to the throne in AD 81, intensified his own determination to extend emperor worship and to bring to bay any unruly elements in the empire. Um, you guys um, might not know this, but the city of Smyrna had an, a temple erected to the emperor, so the emperor could be worshipped there. So the combination of all these events left Christians in a serious predicament. Though they had never been granted the status of an approved faith in the empire, they had existed without serious discrimination and persecution by virtue of their identification as a sub-Jewish sect. So the curse of the Menim generally brought that to an end, and Christians, especially Jewish Christians, found themselves facing the unhappy alternatives of either denying Christ and embracing Judaism entirely, or else preparing themselves for serious persecution at the hands of both the Romans and the Jews. The latter were now seriously alarmed as to what might become of them if they allowed association with Christians in any way. There were certain centers, apparently Smyrna, Philadelphia, and perhaps to some extent Thyatira, uh, where the persecutions faced by Christians at the hands of both Romans and Druze, Jews were particularly ominous. So this, that's some really important historical background because it's going to make sense of why this church is suffering persecution. There's emperor worship in the town, and then we see this weird phrase in, 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 in verse 9 that might seem kind of off-putting. It says, these people who claim they are Jews, but they're not, and they are the synagogue of Satan. You're like, okay, wait a second. Is this like anti-Semitism, like hating on Jewish people? No, not necessarily. Uh, if we look really closely in understanding this, um, we see, okay, God knows their tribulation. And we're, let's, let's walk through this verse really slowly here. So God knows their tribulation. He's aware. But not only that, he says here, uh, they have poverty, yet they're rich. So one commentator says, although it is sometimes difficult for us to adequately describe what scripture, uh, the scriptures teach at times, it is nevertheless clear in scripture the reality that every injustice and evil suffered by believers on earth, there is a significant reward in heaven. So there's an acknowledgement in this text that, yeah, they're going through a very difficult time, a tribulation of some kind. And their poverty, they're, they're suffering poverty. So he's trying to help them reckon with this reality. Even though you're impoverished, you're going through a tough time, you are rich in the kingdom, you're rich in God. Think about the, the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 20. And what does that say? It's one of the Beatitudes. It says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So to recognize, even if you don't have stuff, that even if you're poor, that God says you have the kingdom, you possess the kingdom if you trust in him. And then in, in James chapter 2, verse 5, James chapter 2, verse 5, it says this. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Hear that? Those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And, and, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who loved him? It's a question. If you love God, even though you might be physically poor, you can be rich in the faith. And that's really what's happening with this church here. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, if you're um, writing down these cross-references, I'll read this to you. 
It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And then Hebrews 11.26, I'll read that real quick as well, where it says, He considered Moses, he considered the reproach or the disgrace of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. And then actually thinking of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice what I, with the, the theme actually in all three of those verses, Hebrews 10, 34, 11, 26, and 12, 3. What's the theme? It's joy. It's joy in the midst of suffering. There's a joy and reward. Hey, they gladly allowed their property to be plundered and they had joy. Moses said, hey, I could have all the wealth of Egypt, but I'd rather have the reproach of Christ and he had joy. The, the, in Hebrews chapter 12, there were Jesus. He looked at the cross with joy. You're like, wait a second. He looked at being crucified with joy? Yeah, because he knew that he was going to win. He knew that even though enduring the cross, he, even though that was a shameful thing to hang naked on a cross, he despised the shame because he realized he would win. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was a joy for him to die for you, to take your place, to suffer the wrath of God for you. So, we continue on in this passage, and we talk about the slander. This word, some of your translations might have translated it blasphemy. It's a Greek word, blasphemy. Uh, to blaspheme is typically to in, do something to insult God, okay? But in this case, it can be translated slander or blasphemy because it's directed at the church. And so, um, it's still an insult to God to insult his church, to go after his church. If there are people that you know, or if you yourself have been someone who's attacked the church of God, what do I mean by attacked? If you said negative things about the church, the thing is, we all understand the church ain't perfect. There's hypocrites, there's, 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 you know, we're all hypocrites to some degree. We don't perfectly live up to what we say, but it's still Christ's church. It's his bride. And so we don't want to hate the church, okay? We don't, to, we don't want to be negative about the church. There are people who can do bad things in the church, and we should say things about it, just like um, we see often throughout Scripture. But it's still Christ's church, so we shouldn't abandon her. We shouldn't abandon the body of Christ. So, um... This slander, though, is coming from outside the church, from those who say they're part of God's people. Remember the Jews? They'll say, we're God's people. We're God's people. They might say they're Jews, but really they were not. And why? Well, it's just like in Romans, where you see these people who said that they are of Israel, but they're not truly not. Remember we went through uh, the book of Romans? If you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, go to Romans chapter 9 and look at uh, verse 6 through 8. Verse 6 through 8, this is what it says. But it is not though... Sorry, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Listen to this. Here's the key line. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Think about that one more time. Read over it again with your eyes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So you could be ethnically Jewish, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of the 12 tribes. But notice it says they're not, they don't belong to Israel. They don't belong to God's people. That's what he's talking about, even in this passage, in Revelation. And I'll continue reading actually in Romans 9. He says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. 
but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Children of promise are counted as offspring. So going back to our passage, yeah, they might say they're Jews, but they're not. They belong to the synagogue of Satan. Now that seems kind of like a harsh insult, doesn't it? It's like, I mean, think about if you were to go up to someone and say, hey, you belong to Satan. Like, whoa, okay. I mean, if they're Satanists, they'd be like, yeah, okay, I do. Uh, but, you know, uh, if, if you go up to someone who's claiming they're the people of God and they're not, I mean, that seems like a pretty heavy thing to say. Well, Jesus, by the way, Jesus said it here in this passage, but he also said it in John chapter 8. If you go to John chapter 8, listen to this. I'm going to start in verse 39. Jesus is in a dispute with the Jewish leaders. Listen to this. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you, listen to this, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So he's saying your father's not Abraham. Well, who's, who's their father? Well, they said to him, well, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then look at what Jesus does. Verse 44, You are of your father, the devil. Wait a second. So Jesus is saying to religious leaders who handle God's law that their father's the devil? Wow. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And what was his, their father's desires? He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Listen to this. This is really key for our, our passage even today. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Hey, if you're of God, you hear the words of God. You're like, what do you mean? I'm, you're reading the Bible, Travis. I hear what the Bible says. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. You hear the word of God. You obey and do what it says. That's what it means to hear. To hear and to listen are kind of two slightly different things. You're using your ears on both of them, but to hear means you're comprehending it, you're doing it, and you're, you're, act, you're acting it out. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You're not of God. Now, that is a very serious charge from Jesus, but Jesus tells the truth. Jesus tells the truth. And just like the Jews in John 8, they are of their father the devil, these Jews, particularly in this chapter in the synagogue in Smyrna, are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, why is that important? Well, it seems that they're suffering persecution, right? I brought that up in the beginning. So where does verse 10 go? Look at verse 10. It says, do not fear. It's a command here. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribu tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So he tells them not to fear what they're about to suffer. They're about to go through a really difficult time. And notice when he, when he tells them not to fear, this kind of recounts even once again back in 117 where he says, fear not. I am the first and the last. Be reminded of what he said in the very beginning of this letter. He says, I am the one who's the first and the last. So do not fear. But then he goes on to say, behold. When you see, in the, word, when you see the word behold in the Bible, it's like, hey, 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 right here. Pay attention. Right? It's directing your attention. Because you're already looking. You're already listening to what's being said. Right? 
But when they're saying, behold, it's like, you're already listening. Well, listen even more. Listen, look even closer to what's being said. Ah, so when you see the word behold, let that like catch your attention. Like, okay, I'm going to behold. What's, what's going on? What's being said? Okay. So behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, it's not that, you know, uh, the, the little red man with the horns and pitchforks is going to come out of nowhere and say, hey, I'm taking you off to prison, right? That's not what he's saying, right? Because what did he call the synagogue? The synagogue of Satan. So the Jews, in this case, they're doing Satan's work. They're murderers from the beginning. They're seeking to persecute God's people. They're descended from Israel, but they're not of Israel. They're taking these Christians, and they're throwing them in prison. They're doing the devil's work. So why, though? Why? That they may be tested. That they may be tested. Now, tested. That's really interesting. You know, what is here considered to be a test by God? Because God knew it was a test. God knew it was a test. That's why he said it. They're going to be tested. But what is considered a test for God is also at the same time considered a temptation by the devil. And let me explain what I mean by that. God knows that this is meant to test their faithfulness. That's why he tells them, be faithful. That's why he tells them to be faithful. But Satan is using this event to tempt them away from God, to tempt them away from following him. And here's the thing, though. We as Christians, if we know our Bibles... We know, we know that trials are good for us. And as a matter of fact, we should approach trials with joy. For some of you, though, you think, what? Yes. Let's read what the Bible says about trials and approaching trials with joy. Turn your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. It says, count it all, what's the word there? Joy. Count it all joy. You know, to count means, you know, what? One, two, three, like add it up, right? Or to reckon or to consider. So count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, why? Why should they count it all joy? Why? For you know that the testing of your faith, the test, remember we're talking about the test. What does it do? It does something. You know, when your faith is tested, it does something. Think about it. When you are put on the spot, like I'm about to put one of you kids on the spot. Everyone started paying attention. <laughs> if I put one of you on the spot, what am I doing? I'm testing you. I'm testing you, right? When, what does that do to be tested? It produces something in you. It makes you better at what you just did, right? So maybe you're playing a basketball game, and you're going against a team that's a much better team than you. And when you meet that team, what's it doing? It's testing your skills. It's testing your abilities. And that's, what's that going to do? You keep playing someone really good, you're going to get better, right? You're going to get better. When I, was, when I was in middle school, I didn't play much video games. And then I met this kid named Will. And then I got into video games. And I got into it too much. I was, it was a problem. But Will was a professional, a, hear me out, a professional Super Smash Brothers player. Yeah, he was crazy. Yeah, well, you don't want to meet him now. Um, but back then, he was a really good Super Smash Brothers player. He'd sit there on, it was the Nintendo GameCube back then. Yeah, yeah I'm old. Um, and you see him move his hands, like, super fast. I'm like, I'm trying to look, and I'm like, this seems like he's the Flash on his controller. He's just moving super fast, and he'd win. It was pretty crazy. Well, I tried getting better at Smash. I was no good at it. It was horrible. Well, he liked to play Halo, though, if you guys have played Halo. And that's back when Xbox One, I'm talking 2002. Like, some of y'all were not even a twinkle in your parents' eye. Um... But what? I played Halo against him, and I was really bad. But I, over time, I got really good. And then eventually, 
by playing someone better than me, I got so good that I went to compete for it. Now, that is a very nerdy example, but it's an example nonetheless that, hey, I tested myself against someone better than me. What happened? I, it produced something in me. In the same way, when you meet trial after trial, maybe a trial as a 13-year-old, I mean, it seems like, whoa, this is heavy. I can't handle this. And then when you're like 20, you're like, man, that was so easy. Why would I complain about that? Well, what does trials do? What do they do in your life? They make you better. Tests make you better. That's why your teachers test you in school. So you get better at the content you're working with. And it produces a sense of steadfastness in your life. That's what God's trying to do with your faith. You know that? Every time you meet a trial, God is trying to test your faith. And he's wanting to test your character. He's wanting to test whether you will choose to be faithful to him or not. And guess what? It's a test everyone goes through. Guys, no one is exempt. I'm not exempt. You're not exempt. Everyone goes through trials in life. Everyone does. And in that moment of the trial, you can choose to let it have its full effect. Look at James 1.4 and let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't deny the trial coming your way and question God and say, God, why would you let this happen to me? That's the wrong approach to a trial. Rather, you say, God, I trust you in the midst of this trial. Help me to trust your hand. Even when I, I can't see what you're doing, help me to trust what you're doing. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? There's a purpose that you, 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 you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a purpose in trials. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And look at what this passage says. And I'll start at verse 1. I think the context is actually helpful here. Look at, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, here's the emphasis I want to get at in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in suffering? Why? Knowing we know something. We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Students, God has a purpose in trials. And this test that the church of Smyrna is going through, back to Revelation 2, this test that they're to, look, they're not to fear in the midst of what they're suffering. The devil's going to throw them into prison. Why? That they may be tested. That they may be tested. It's a temptation that the devil's tempting them with, but it's a test God is giving them. Now, this, these, this idea of 10 days in this text, I want to talk about that. Uh, it says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, there are different ways people have interpreted this. Some say it's symbolic. Some say it's literal. Uh, I, I tend toward the literal, but I think symbolic. It's not wrong to say it's symbolic if someone wants to go that route, uh, just because, you know, they'll look at the numbers, and sometimes the number 10 pops up a lot. And so some people say it's symbolic. They say it could uh, indicate the thoroughness of the persecution to befall them, uh, but also some say it could be 10 specific kinds of persecutions. Those are options as well. Uh, but one theologian, which makes me think this is literal, by the way, one theologian did some research archaeologically in the area, and he said this really brief, briefly. He said, based on the inscriptions in the ancient liter for, literature for the area, uh, he said that the 10 days was a period in which those who were to be sent forth in, in the gladiatorial combat were imprisoned. 
So they had 10 days to sit in prison before they were thrown to the gladiators and to the tigers uh, and the lions. And so that 10 days was a time of obviously great anguish. If you're knowing, okay, it's day one and in ten, you know, ten, nine or 10 more days, guess what? I'm in the gladiatorial ring. And all the city of Smyrna is there laughing and jeering and mocking. And I'm being told, we're about to let the lions loose and the tigers loose. If you just pinch this incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, we'll let you walk out of this gladiatorial ring. If not, you're going to be fed to the lions. And they sit there for 10 days thinking about that test. That's a test, is it not? It's a test. Think about night and day. You probably can't even sleep. They're trying to exhaust you, wear you out, break you down to tempt you away from Christ. And what's happening here? The devil's going to throw them into prison that they may be tested for 10 days and they will have tribulation. But Christ's command, look at the text, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. Notice Jesus does not seek to merely comfort them with words to say, hey, it's going to be okay. What does he do? As a captain to soldiers, he says, be faithful. Stand strong. Don't give up. Don't be afraid. Yes, it's a test. Don't be afraid. And what I love about what Jesus does in this passage, he gives a command followed by a promise. A command followed by a promise. That's a, that's a pattern you see in Scripture. Maybe as you're reading your Bible and you're doing Bible study in quiet time, keep that in mind. You often see commands and promises. Commands and promises following one another. Get, let me give you an example. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. A command. It says, hey, walk by the Spirit. That's a command. You know what the promise is? And you will not gratify desires of the flesh. You can't. You can't, cannot gratify the desires of your flesh. Command and then a promise. We see it here clearly as well. Be faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Reliable. Trustworthy. You're going to keep your word. You're going to walk rightly with Christ. And it's promised, I will give you. What are they given? The crown of life. Now remember in the beginning, I told you, remember this idea of the crown? Smyrna, Smyrna's bragged about how their city was the crown of Asia Minor. And you got to think, to some degree, they go into that gladiatorial ring and they think, these, oh, these gladiators fight each other. I'm in, and there's so much glory in the gladiatorial ring. But they were going to go there, be tested, and be shamed, and be seen as the losers, to be seen as those who are mocked. And this city who is the crown, and this gladiatorial ring that might have this crown here, they're told, guess what? This crown that you will receive if you are faithful to the end, I will give you this crown, is the crown of life. This, this word for crown, this, there's different Greek words for crown. This one is Stephanus, where maybe the name Stephen comes from. Stephanus was a crown that was given to those who won the battle or who won the competition. It was like a wreath around the head. And this was to signify victory. Victory. And so here, this victory is eternal life, even grammatically, the crown of life. The life, eternal life with God is the crown. Eternal life with God is the victory. It is the battle that is won. And even the book of James even confirms this with um, James chapter 1, verse 12, blessed or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, hear that. When, when they have stood the test and faced in the gladiatorial ring, the persecution, when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. Listen to this, which God has promised to those who love him. Those who love God are considered faithful to God. 
when you love your spouse, you're considered faithful to that spouse. Faithfulness marks love. Love marks faithfulness. They're wed together. God wants you to be faithful to him. That's why he commands that even in times of testing, you be faithful. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11 closes, it says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everyone has an ear, so they should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for all churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Notice this whole thing has been about not being afraid. You're going to suffer. I know you're in tribulation. You're going to face more tribulation. And what does he say in the end? Even though you're going to suffer, even though you're going to be tested, even though you, yet I need you to be faithful unto death, guess what? You're not going to be hurt by the second death. So Jesus is saying, guess what? You are going to be hurt by the first death. You are going to be hurt by the first death. That's going to happen to each one of you. It's going to happen to me. But you cannot be hurt by the second death. You will not be hurt by the second death. Here, here, a big if. Here's the big conditional if. You will not be hurt by the second death if you have faith in Christ alone. If you have faith in Christ alone. To be crowned with eternal life is to have escaped the second death. Notice it says nothing about escaping the first death in this passage. But the second death, it's really important. Let's look at it in the book of Revelation. Go to the end of Revelation. Go to chapter 20. Revelation 20, I'll start in verse 4, and we're going to read down to verse 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now go, go down to verse 14 in the same chapter. Verse 14. And actually, I'll start at verse 11 and go to 14. I think this whole section is important. Then I saw a great white throne. Guys, the great white throne in the Bible is where unbelievers go for judgment. If you don't have faith in Christ, you don't have a relationship with God, if you're not in right standing with God, at the end of all things, this is where you'll be. I don't want you there. Jesus doesn't want you there either. But let's read what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Guys, if you don't have Christ, your works, your good and bad works are written in a book. They're written in a book. And if your name is not found in the book of life... You're going to be judged by the, what you've done written in the books. Will you be able to stand before God saying, look, God, I was righteous. I can escape the second death. I can go to heaven based on my works alone. No. Notice where the text goes in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So the, everyone who died not in Christ is resurrected. They're resurrected back to life. And what happens? They stand before the great white throne of judgment. 
Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. What, are they, what is God saying here? Death and Hades are no more because they're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where is your name written? Is your name in the book of life? Christ, once again, just reflecting on the themes of this passage, Christ is the first and the last, and that should bring comfort during temporal tribulation. He is sovereign over everything. Jesus is ruler over all of history. He's ruling over your life, and even the church and his suffering. So some might respond, maybe you might respond this way. Well, if God knows about their suffering, why doesn't he do anything about their suffering right now? Why doesn't he stop it? Well, because God has a plan for your suffering. You, we may not know exactly what that plan might be. But maybe you've had that question. Maybe you have gone through suffering yourself recently and thought, where was God when? And just fill in the blank. Where was God when my, my grandfather died? Where was God when my mom and dad split up? Where was, where was God when my best friends made fun of me and abandoned me? Where was God when? Fill in the blank. You might ask that question of suffering and think, why didn't God do something? Guess what? God was doing something. He was watching over you in the midst of your suffering. Because God is sovereign in your suffering. God is sovereign in your suffering. And you might think, well, if he's watching, why didn't he do anything? He was doing something. He was wanting to test you. He was wanting your faith to produce steadfastness that you would trust in him. Because guess what, guys? Romans 8. Go, everyone turn in your Bibles. Go to Romans 8. Let's talk about suffering really quickly. Because I think a lot of Christians don't get this. Hey, when I was your age and I lost someone in my life, I didn't get this. I want you to get it. I don't want you to go years through life and not understand the purpose of God in your suffering. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Say that, say that with me, not worth comparing. Not worth comparing. It's not worth comparing. There's a lot of things in life that are not worth our time. Not worth our time. He says, I consider that the sufferings right now that I'm facing in this present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, listen here, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what do we do in the midst of our suffering? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. You see, you may not like the suffering that you're facing, but like your life is not ultimately about pleasure. Your life is about the glory of God. Your life is meant to know God better and to rely on Him. Not only that, we see Jesus in this passage. Because He died and He came back to life, we can have assurance that we're not alone in our suffering. And that we, like Jesus died and rose again, will one day rise with Him and be completely free of all suffering forever. So, that, so here is 
the conclusion, I think, for our audience today, if you're taking notes. The temporal tribulation we face in the world is not worth comparing to the conqueror's crown of eternal life offered by Christ. The temporal tribulation that you and I face in the world, it's not worth comparing to the conqueror's crown of eternal life that is offered by Christ. That is offered by Christ. Real briefly, I want to close with this story of Polycarp. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, some of this is embellished because um, that's part of what this would happen in church history, but some of this is very true. I'll just try to read the parts that are um, particularly important for my illustration. But what happened was he went off to be arrested, and people went to search, or people were searching for him to arrest him because he was a bishop. They wanted to persecute the Christians. They found him in a barn, and the soldiers went to arrest him, but he asked if he could pray. So he prays for an hour, and the soldiers are thinking to themselves, why are we arresting this guy? He doesn't sound like a bad guy. Well, after he's done praying, they take him to the city, and when he nears the city, a heathen magistrate approaches in a chariot, and he says, Polycarp, get in. They get in, and they're going, and he tries to persuade him as a Christian to sacrifice to Caesar, to pinch incense to Caesar and to say, Caesar is Lord, but he refuses. Upon doing so, the magistrate throws him out of the chariot where he scrapes his shins on the ground, old elderly man. Well, they take him to the amphitheater where a great number of people are gathered. At the sight of him, a mob sets up loud cries of rage and savage delight. They're excited to see this man die. But Polycarp hears a voice telling him, be strong and play the man. Consequently, he does not allow the spite of the crowd to trouble him. The governor asks him to deny Christ and promises that if he will deny Christ, his life will be spared. But the faithful bishop answers, Four score and six years have I served him. Four, a score is 20 years. Four score and six years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Eighty-six years he followed Christ. And God has never done him wrong, he said. Never done me injury. How could I then deny him, my king? How could I blaspheme or insult my king and savior? So when he rejects further pressures to deny Jesus and save himself, the governor threatens to burn him. But then you know what Polycarp does? He turns it on him and says, he warns him of the eternal fire he'll face if he doesn't repent and trust in Christ. He's like, okay, you can burn me at the stake, but I'll just burn for a moment. I'm dead and I'm with Christ. But if you don't repent, governor, you will burn forever in hell. Wow, what a response. What a bold response from Polycarp. So the soldiers prepare to nail Polycarp to the stake, but he assures him it won't be needed, and he's tied up instead. The fire is lit, and the flames rise around him. Um, but he ends up not being burned, because this is the embellished part of the story. The, the fires departed from him. They wouldn't burn him. And a soldier came up and stabbed him like an animal. Um, so he's dead. But in his death, he honors Christ. He honors Christ. So let me ask you this question. This is really key, and I think Polycarp illustrates this, and the Church of Smyrna does. Students, right here, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Do you recognize your life that you belong to Jesus, or do you belong to you? Are you all about self-preservation or about giving your life for Christ? Do you belong to the one who's the first and the last, he's over everything? Do you belong to the one who defeated death? 
by his death on the cross, who rose again from the grave? Do you belong to him? If you belong to him, then you need to be doing the things in your life that help you to remain faithful to him to the end. But if you don't belong to him, your portion right now is in the lake of fire, which burns with sulfur, unless you repent and trust in Christ. Jesus calls you to come and die to yourself that you might live forever with him. So if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can have one today. It doesn't have to wait till tomorrow or the next day or when you're older and you want to settle down and have a family, whatever. Like you today, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you can trust Christ and your life be right with him. Your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life and you will not suffer eternal separation from God. Matthew's gospel clearly says that hell was not created for humans. It was created for Satan and his demons. But if you don't trust Christ today, it could be very well that you spend eternity separated from God. We all sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. I sin. You sin. For all have sinned. We fall short of God's standard. Right? And because of our sin, the wages of our sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. We deserve death. If any of you have a job, the wages for your work is that paycheck, right? Well, the wages of your sin, what you deserve for your sin is death. You deserve it. I deserve it. But God demonstrates his love toward us that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we recognize that even in his resurrection, our salvation, it cannot be by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, God's undeserved kindness toward you and me, by grace, you have been saved. How? through faith, through trust, through reliance on God. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift of God, not a result of what? Works. Not a result of going to church all the time, reading through your Bible, memorizing the Bible, sharing the gospel with people. It's not a result of works. We can't make our way to God. We're not good enough. Our righteousness to God is as filthy rags. We need His righteousness given to us so we can stand before Him. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. I hope, students, that today you've reflected on the word and you'll let it sink in and you'll trust in Christ if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And if you do, that you'll be faithful to him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray, God, that this, this word would sink deep into our hearts, that we'd seek to apply it to our lives and be faithful to what it says and faithful to you unto death and to the end. Maybe death is not an immediate, immediate threat for any of us for persecution, but I would not be surprised if it's not too far down the road for some of us. Maybe it's not the threat of death, but the threat of status, the threat of a job, the threat of a degree, the threat of a relationship, anything. Well, Lord, I pray that we would all stand the test and be faithful to the end, whatever end that may be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.